Hello, this is Dr. Kenneth Spiegelman, uh, Director of uh, Medical Director of Continuing Medical Education at Connecticut Children's, and welcome to Pediatric Podcast Pearls. We are so happy to have Dr. Barbara Edelheit, who is our Division Head of Rheumatology at Connecticut Children's, to come to speak to us about joint pains in children and families. Uh, Joint pain in children is a very common complaint and is usually, but not always, not a serious condition and can be difficult to distinguish between normal childhood aches and pains and when a child needs further evaluation. So we are so happy to have you here, Dr. Edelheit, to answer some of our common questions that we hear from our families all the time. Uh, Dr. Edelheit, what are growing pains? We hear about these pains all the time from our families uh, who come in or on the phone about their kids who have aches and pains during the day and during the night. And they ask us, are these growing pains? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me uh, to talk today. I'm, I'm looking forward to this opportunity to talk with you. Um, and yes, growing pains are very common. And um, I think, as I say to families frequently, um, while it does sound like almost a garbage bag term where, oh, we don't know what to call this, we'll call it growing pains, there is a very uh, real and consistent um, presentation of growing pains. So these are pains uh, that occur typically in elementary school age kids that occur in the evening or night. Uh, most typical would be both, uh, so bilateral lower extremities. Um, and often they will occur um, at the end of a day that a child has been very active. So um, frequently the ch children will have a very nonspecific way of describing the pain, um, should be in both legs, um, could be thighs, calves, knees, ankles, and often they will ask their parents to massage the area. Um, frequently Tylenol or ibuprofen is very helpful. And most importantly, the idea is that the child should wake up in the morning and have no pain. So the things that would absolutely not be consistent with growing pains, and that certainly would suggest a need to evaluate further would be uh, joint swelling would absolutely not be part of growing pains. Uh, morning stiffness would not be part of growing pains. Abnormal gait or limping would not be part of growing pains. Um, and, and in theory, you know, daytime severe pain is not technically as specific for growing pains. Well, well thank you. Parents often ask us, they're growing pains, but what causes them? Can we give them a uh, good answer from a medical standpoint? Um, that's a great question too, and very interesting because often uh, families will have a concept that you know if it's been a period of very rapid growth, you should almost be able to superimpose um, a chart of the growing pains on top of that period of growth. Right. <laughs> And I'll explain to families that unfortunately, like so much in rheumatology, it's not that um, straightforward. I think the idea is that we know that these are essentially benign pains. Um, children will outgrow them. They cause no damage. Um, and so it is a way of describing a benign pain. Um, 
And by definition, kids this age are growing. So I think that is where the term growing pains came from. One thing that I will say to families is this is not to imply that the child is not having significant pain. Often growing pains can be quite painful. Indeed. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, I almost wish in our parents' generation they had a different name other than growing pains, you know. But benign pains would have been better from our perspective, but not from theirs. And parents often need that explanation that growing does not cause pain, but it happens during the growth stage. Exactly. So thank you. So a newer diagnosis that I never saw in my training, but we're hearing more of, is something called benign hypermobility syndrome. Could you discuss that in a little bit more detail? Absolutely. And we see many, many kids um, with pain from, from hypermobility. And I think one thing that can be confusing is that the terminology here has changed um, over the years, even in the time that I've been um, in rheumatology. So the idea is that um, currently we describe more of a hypermobility spectrum disorder. At one end are kids who are just hypermobile and have no pain and no complaints and are going about their lives. And at the other would be what's now termed hypermobility EDS or Ehlers-Danlos, um, or some people will still use the terminology type three EDS. Those are kind of interchangeable. And the idea is that these are kids who are um, very hypermobile. <laughs> we use what are called the Baton criteria. There are nine criteria. And um, these are frequently kids who are not surprisingly very good at uh, gymnastics, dance, cheerleading. So these are kids for whom this hypermobility is in some ways making them very good at lots of the sports they like to do. Um, but unfortunately, um, there can be pain associated with this extra motion of the joints. So the pain is not so much inside the joint itself, but really in the soft tissue surrounding the joint. And um, the recommended interventions here are really physical therapy and sometimes the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories to be used as needed or sometimes some of the sleeves or other ways to kind of help provide more stability for those very loose joints. So what would be any pearls for us in primary care to make that diagnosis, either by history or by that 15-minute visit? Because I would venture to say that many of us have not made that diagnosis ourselves, but have seen the diagnosis come back to us after we refer to you or to an orthopedist. Well, um, I think, you know, the, the Baton criteria, which if we, if we were on video instead of audio, I usually will demonstrate to families and then they'll say, oh gosh, yes, I can do that too. This is a very um, genetically related condition. Usually when a child is hypermobile, at least one of the parents is also hypermobile. Um, but it's, interesting that often the families will come in and describe, oh, yes, my child can, you know, get their leg around their neck or other sort of, um, you know, activities where they are demonstrating this. Um, sort of like the old double jointed kid. Or exactly. Something. Exactly. Right. I will. I, that is a very good point. Um, 
we used to use the term double jointed. Some people say loose jointed. Some people exactly. say laxity. These are all sort of interchangeable describing this condition. Okay, thanks. And then the third common uh, source of joint pain we often see are often described as overuse injuries. Since we have so many kids in athletics, the seasons are very short and these kids ramp up very, very quickly and then come in with multiple joint pains. So I think that um, some of that gets to sort of our initial assessment when we're seeing kids who come in with joint pain. I mean, really, my first point of uh, decision making is, is this pain from inflammation or not inflammation? And so inflammation would include things like um, short-term arthritis, like Lyme arthritis, reactive arthritis, um, or obviously long-term juvenile idiopathic arthritis or arthritis as part of a more systemic condition. And then we have the non-inflammatory causes of pain. And that's really, you know, much of what we've been talking about so far. And so I think once I've established that the child's pain is not from inflammation, and then I'm thinking about causes of the pain, as you say, if they are, a, you know, an athlete doing a specific sport multiple days or mul or many hours a day, um, that's certainly in my differential. Um, I will often use my colleagues in uh, orthopedics or sports medicine if I really feel that that is the cause of the pain, and I will refer to them for some of their expertise. Okay, thanks. Thank you. This is what are sources of concern that you would have in the history given by the parent about the child in terms of not only symptoms, but in terms of quality of the pain and when it occurs during the day? So I think um, those are very important questions. I would say, um, when I'm trying to look at that initial decision point to determine if it's from inflammation or not inflammatory pain, um, because of course the list of possible causes, you know, depends on whether there's arthritis or what we would term arthralgia, meaning pain without um, swelling. So the key features uh, that we would be listening for for a child with arthritis would have to do more with morning stiffness, pain that often will get better with activity, and then of course, joint swelling, versus I think you're getting at a child who may not have inflammatory pain, would likely have pain more after activity or toward the end of the day, pain that would get worse with activity exactly. and no joint swelling. Okay, thanks, that's really helpful. If we had those red flag signs, what laboratories, if any, should a general practitioner obtain? So as you and I were discussing, uh, that is sometimes the million dollar question. Um, I know that uh, many of the labs we, we do in rheumatology do feel um, very uh, complicated and not straightforward. Um, but I guess I would say, again, it really depends whether I'm trying to determine if a child has inflammatory pain or non-inflammatory pain. If I'm seeing a child who has pain that is out of proportion to what I would expect based on their exam, 
of course, malignancy is in there, our differential of joint pain in kids. And we have picked up, unfortunately, kids with leukemia or bone tumors um, who present initially to the rheumatologist. So what, when I'm sorry, would, 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 would malignancy include pain that wakes kids up a lot in the middle of the night too, beyond yes, growing pain? Exactly. So that's a very important distinction. And I guess I would say again, you know, if the pain is unilateral and if the pain seems severe, I would certainly get some imaging um, before I would say, oh, no, no, don't worry. That's just growing pains. Um, so I would say in terms of blood tests for the child who doesn't have evidence of inflammation, I would certainly want to get a blood count, sed rate, CRP and often an LDH and uric acid to be sure that I'm not missing anything um, much more worrisome. Um, if a child does have arthritis, then of course the labs would be different. And in this area, certainly we would wanna look for Lyme um, in addition to again, probably a blood count, a sed rate, CRP. And in that setting, depending on which joints were involved, I may want to get something like an ANA or rheumatoid factor. I was just going to mention that I think we all grew up through our medical school and other training to automatically get an ANA and a rheumatoid factor, which I have never been found to be that helpful. Often we get these, and can you comment on that? We get these slightly high, but not very high ANAs, and then we end up calling you. Well, first of all, I should say we are always uh, happy to help any um, any pediatricians, any primary care physicians and APPs. That is what we're here for. So any questions about labs or other things, please reach out to us. But to answer the question more specifically, I think it is a very important thing to point out that kids can have arthritis and have, quote, all normal tests. So a child with juvenile idiopathic arthritis can actually have a normal CDC, a normal SED rate, a negative ANA and a negative rheumatoid factor. So if the child has joint swelling, um, we certainly would wanna at least talk to um, a physician about that child um, and or see them, of course. But I think when we do find positive ANAs or rheumatoid factors, um, that it, it often depends on how high those numbers are. So a positive rheumatoid factor is far more specific and a child with a positive rheumatoid factor, we would certainly wanna see. The positive ANAs, as you point out, can be far more complicated. Um, there is a not insignificant percent of the normal healthy population who have positive ANAs that have no clinical significance. Um, in a child with juvenile idiopathic arthritis, that positive ANA helps us know who is at higher risk for inflammatory eye disease. Um, and so in that setting, we sort of view the ANA as almost a pass-fail. If they have a positive ANA and they have juvenile idiopathic arthritis, it increases their risk for inflammatory eye disease. Okay, super. Uh, we, everyone I's, that I've ever worked with over the years, we, uh, since we live in such a Lyme infected area, 
if they see a child with joint pain, it's almost reflexively getting a Lyme test, uh, which in my experience, just joint pain as a symptom of Lyme disease may not bear it out. Could you talk a little bit about Lyme disease and joint pain? Sure. And I think you make an excellent point, and I would agree with you 100%. So when we in rheumatology think about Lyme disease, we think of sort of two, two, two ways in which uh, it's connected with joint pain. So early Lyme, which you on the front lines are seeing far more often than we are, um, one can have joint pain as part of those kind of flu-like symptoms of early Lyme. Um, and in those settings, as you know, you know, in very early, those tests may still be negative. Um, but for the kids who have true arthritis, so a, and typically with Lyme arthritis, it's one very swollen knee. Um, the Lyme testing there is very, very helpful. And it does not need to be testing from the joint fluid. Um, the blood test for Lyme there should be very strongly positive to make a diagnosis of Lyme arthritis because Lyme arthritis is a later manifestation of Lyme disease. So in that child with a singular swollen knee, which probably is the most common of just singular joint swellings that I've seen over the years, it seems like the differential is often beyond trauma between Lyme disease in idiopathic or juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Would you agree with that? Certainly in Connecticut, <laughs> do you have a child with one swollen knee? Um, we, it, it, you know, yes, Lyme arthritis is one of the most common reasons. Well, it's probably the most common reason in the short term. And we certainly would want to rule that out. We often have, we also could, I mean, we could have kids who have reactive arthritis um, and then if it is not Lyme arthritis and it seems to be going on longer, I mean, beyond six weeks is when we start thinking about juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, I should mention that when you were asking earlier about more emergency type situations, I mean, all of this is we're discussing if there are no signs of a septic joint, meaning that this child does not have a high fever or a red, extremely painful uh, joint swelling. Okay, super. Let me, get, I, I wanna enter another area of subject, probably we could do an entire podcast on too, which is that of uh, complex regional pain syndrome, amplified pain syndrome, fibromyalgia, we, uh, I think some of those are often lumped together. They merge into different definitions for which we often see, or we see, but we don't know how to define it. Could you talk briefly about those in uh, sure. symptomology? As you say, this could be a very lengthy conversation, but uh, sure. So these are kids, again, who typically have very long-standing pain. So it's really challenging. These are already children and families who, are, who have been suffering for a very long time. And usually when the kids come in, um, the pain has been present often for months, if not years. Often I meet families who say they, they literally can't remember a time before their child had this diffuse pain. Um, usually these kids have pain, not just in the joints, but also in the muscles. 
and often will have associated chest pain, belly pain, um, and headaches along with this. So in this case, um, the labs should be normal, meaning a normal blood count, normal sed rate, normal CRP, so no signs of systemic inflammation. And usually the, well, not usually, the exam should never have evidence of arthritis or weakness or other features which would suggest something else. Um, and I think that there is a greater understanding now, and the reason we in rheumatology prefer the term amplified musculoskeletal pain syndrome is that that really describes what is felt to be more the pathophysiology. So it's felt that these are kids where the pain processing system is ramped up. So instead of what should be the response to painful stimuli, these children are now experiencing pain, uh, pain response to stimuli that, that are not, should not cause that. And there are many uh, triggers. Um, sometimes these are kids who do have underlying hypermobility and from years of that extra range of motion of joints can experience this. Sometimes these kids have a lot of anxiety or depression or other things that can trigger this physical response of pain. Um, but this can be a really challenging um, condition. Uh, often these kids have started missing school and really dropping out of things they love doing, dropping out of their sports. Um, and it's it's really hard to see these kids and how they're suffering. So we are grateful that here at Connecticut Children's, we have an amazing pain team. And I reassure the families that they have a holistic approach um, and they address the kids' pain from uh, many areas. The literature shows that the best approach is physical therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and our team also works on making sure these kids are sleeping, getting restorative sleep, managing anxiety. Um, and so our, we are very fortunate that, that here at Connecticut Children's, we have our wonderful pain team. Are these kids there? by the time they get to you, require or have already had an extensive medical workup in terms of laboratory tests, consultations before they get to that point in diagnosis? Yes, I would say often these kids have seen many physicians, um, you know, sometimes when if uh, because of the joint pain, maybe they have already seen orthopedics, um, sometimes they've already seen neurology if they have uh, severe headaches, Often they've seen cardiology because chest pain can be part of this. They may have seen gastroenterology if they have associated belly pain. So you make a very good point that these kids often have been, you know, going round and round to many different physicians because the pain can be in so many different areas of their bodies. Okay, thank you. And last question, again, a cause for another podcast. How often do we see or you see joint pain as a manifestation of other disease processes, i.e. an inflammatory bowel disease or a neurological uh, illness creating joint pain as another symptom of it? Um, so that's a great question too. I think it is very important to think about um, other conditions. So for example, celiac, there's a high percentage of kids who will have joint involvement 
or as you point out, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, so yes, I mean, we often are thinking about ways uh, that other conditions where kids may have joint pain. You mentioned with oligoarthritis in the possibility of uh, eye disease and uveitis, does the eye disease ever present as the initial symptom? Yes. Um, so we do have kids who are referred to us from ophthalmology who were initially found to have uveitis. And then uh, we will help look for an underlying systemic rheumatic disease. Um, but there are kids where we don't find one. Um, and yet we play a role in helping with uh, treatment for those kids. So we work hand in hand with our ophthalmology colleagues often to provide medications for those kids to treat the uveitis, even if they don't have an underlying rheumatic disease. Okay, well, thank you. I think, uh, Dr. Edelheit, we could create two more podcasts out of this discussion today. But thank you so much for this great uh, summation of symptoms and reasons to get testing and definitions of joint problems in children. We really appreciate you and what your department does for us and those in the community and providing care for all of our families. I would also like to say that there will be something mentioned in our website of CME, uh, some materials that you can use, referred to us by Dr. Edelheit by the Arthritis Foundation, where some excellent educational materials are available that we can offer our families when they suffer from some of these issues. So thank you very much again for attending. And we hope to hear from you or you hear from us at our next podcast next month. Thank you. Bye-bye.